We're from Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. Again, that is Ephesians 2, 11 through 22. It says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we pray this morning that you would help us and that you would strengthen us as we seek to hear your voice in your word. And that in hearing, we pray you would make us ready to obey and that we would be a people to the praise of your glorious grace as we respond what it is that you have for us this morning in your word. We entrust this time to you and pray that you would do in it and with it all that you desire. In Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Last Sunday, I thought I was going to die writes Kyle Don in a recent blog post, brace, brace, brace. The flight attendants prepared us for impact. 
the pilot of American Air Airlines Flight 2775, which had just taken off from Charlotte, North Carolina, and was heading to Seattle, announced moments earlier that our plane was experiencing engine failure and that we needed to prepare for a crash landing. The attendants ran frantically up and down the cabin preparing us. I missed their explanation on exactly how to brace. I wondered if I was doing it right, so I looked around. I saw a grown man crying. I saw a couple holding hands tightly. I've never felt so out of control or totally exposed or honestly so scared. Three rows from the back of the plane in a middle seat with absolutely no ability to change anything that was about to happen. People were weeping, chests to their knees. We'd been above the clouds for a bit, but the ground was now getting closer. I saw trees, then closer, more trees. It felt like forever and a split second, all at the same time. Then, somehow, suddenly, a runway underneath us. We glided onto the tarmac, hollering, clapping, cheering, and crying. There is nothing like a brush with death to put life into perspective. If you had been on that flight, you would have held your family that night with a sense of gratitude that perhaps you haven't experienced for a while. Gratitude is a forgotten virtue in our world, isn't it? Well, we continue our series in the book of Ephesians today, and Paul, our author, has been seeking to foster gratitude in the hearts of his readers, because you remember they too had been saved. Last week, he, he told them, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God... Being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. And so, gratitude was in order. Jesus' salvation had changed everything about their standing before God. And this week, Paul will argue that Jesus' salvation changed everything about their standing before others. You see, Paul was writing to people like us, Gentiles, non-Jews. And back then, there was all of this bad blood between Jews and Gentiles. God had called the nation of Israel to belong to him, but his favor to them had sort of been misinterpreted and twisted into a kind of favoritism toward them. So that instead of looking up to God with gratitude, they looked down on people like us with 
hatred. For example, back then, if a, if a Jewish man or a Jewish woman married a Gentile man or a Gentile woman, the Jewish family would hold a funeral for them. They were saying, you are dead to us. And as you can imagine, we didn't appreciate that very much. And so they hated us, and many, uh, many of them hated us, and many of us hated them. But the point of our passage today is this. The church is God's new creation. A new creation where believing Jews and believing Gentiles are equals. Equally loved by God, equally accepted by God, equally valued by God, and therefore equally able to love and to accept and to value one another. And Paul wanted his Gentile readers to feel amazed at that. Grateful to God for that. Grateful that they belonged to a new community. One where the walls of division had been broken down and the barbed wires of discrimination had been altogether removed. Could there be a more relevant passage for our time and for the secular West? Because we live in a time, don't we, when words like diversity or equality and inclusion are really like the three members of the secular trinity in the West. And yet our world is still deeply divided. Here in Ephesians 2 verses 11 to 22, Paul provides the world with the remedy. In Jesus Christ, the church is God's new creation, a body that is united to him and united to one another. And so for, to foster gratitude in the hearts of his readers, Paul presses his readers to remember three realities. He says, remember, number one, your history before Christ. Number two, your unity in Christ. And number three, your identity in Christ as well. And so number one, your history before Christ. Look again, friends, at verses 11 to 12 of Ephesians chapter 2. Therefore, writes, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, and the circumcision there is a reference to the Jews, which is made in the flesh by hands. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You see that to have them marvel at what God had made them. Paul tells them to remember who they once were. He says, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, you were Christless. Verse 12, you were at that time separated from Christ. He says, church, listen, remember, at one time you were starving to death because you were separated from Jesus, the bread of life. He says, remember, church, that at one time you were blind because you were separated from Jesus, who is the light of the world. He says, church, remember, you were at one time lost because you were separated from Jesus, the good shepherd of the sheep. 
He says, remember, church, at one time you were in the outer darkness because you were separated from Jesus, who is the door of the sheep. You were Christless. And then Paul says, spiritually speaking, you were homeless too. Middle of verse 12, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You had no place to lay your head in the nation that had God as its king. You were citizens of another world. A world that had the evil one as its ruler. Christless, homeless, and friendless. Verse 12, strangers to the covenants of promise. Like an embarrassed man who waves to a man on the street, thinking that that man is waving to him, only to turn around and realize he's waving to someone else. Altogether, before Jesus welcomed you, God's covenant promises weren't for you. And you were hopeless, end of verse 12, having no hope. Yes, God had planned to include you and to include all nations, that the seed of Abraham would have all of the nations be blessed, and yet you knew nothing about that whatsoever. And so you were Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, and godless, end of verse 12, without God in the world. You had never heard God say to you, I am with you, because God was not with you. That's who you once were, Paul writes. But, says Paul, in Jesus Christ, that is no longer who you are. You're Christless, homeless, friendless, hopeless, and godless lives are in the rear view mirror. Jesus has welcomed you. And Jesus has made all things new in your life so that now you are a new creation in him. The old is gone and the new has come and the past is the past. And for us believers, I want to say this, the extent to which we remember who we once were will be the extent to which we are amazed at who we now are. Let me say that again, friends. The extent to which we remember who we once were will be the extent to which we are amazed at, we, at who we now are. And so to the one among us today who is spiritually dry, spiritually cold, spiritually lifeless and numb, could it be that you have forgotten? Could it be that you've forgotten your history, your past without Jesus. See, friends, I don't think we're anywhere near as good at remembering as we think we are. She was 33 years old. She got in her car for what she assumed would be a, an average day at work, but she didn't arrive at work. Instead, she arrived at 3.30 in the morning, three hours away from her office, and yet she had no idea how she'd gotten there at all. She didn't know what to do, so she, she checked herself into a hotel, and she woke up to see clothes draped over a chair that she didn't recognize. Walked into the bathroom, stared in the mirror to see a face looking back at her that she didn't recognize. Somebody said this, that she had descended into that dark fog that we call amnesia. 
And the reason that we can be surrounded on Sunday mornings by passionate singing and feel no passion. And hear what I hope and pray to God is zealous preaching and yet feel no zeal at all. Is because we too have descended into a dark fog that we call amnesia. An amnesia where we've forgotten who we once were. An amnesia where we have forgotten what Jesus pulled us out of. And again, church, to marvel, you must remember. To marvel, you must remember often. And if you're here today and you're, you're not yet a Christian and you would say, yeah, well, I feel lifeless and I feel hopeless and I feel numb. I want to let you into a secret. The reason your life sometimes feels lonely, lifeless, fragile, directionless, empty, and meaningless is because it is. You see that without Jesus Christ, a Christless life, a spiritually homeless life, a friendless life, a hopeless life, a godless life is no life at all. It is all too easy to exist, but not to live. Macbeth nailed it, didn't he, when he said this, life is but a walking shadow, a poor player that struts and frets his hour upon the stage and then is heard no more. It is a tale told by an idiot, full of sound and fury, signifying nothing. And money can't change that. And popularity can't change that. And pleasure can't change that. Only Jesus Christ can change that. Take it from the Ephesian church. That's who they used to be. Take it for, from the believers of this church. That's who we used to be. And take it from me. That's who I used to be as well. Second, your unity in Christ. To marvel that you belong to this new creation. Remember your unity in Christ. Look at verses 13 and 18. Paul writes, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in Ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. And might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we, ha we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Paul says... In contrast to your history before Christ is your present unity in Christ. He says you, you used to be those who were far off from God and far off from God's people. But now in Christ Jesus you've been brought near to both. He says you used to be there used, there used to be hostility between you Jews and you Gentiles, but now in Jesus Christ, there's peace because you are no longer two, but you are one. 
a brand new creation, one new man, one new body made up of believing Jews and believing Gentiles, one where the wall of hostility has been broken down. When Paul wrote that, he probably had in his mind the literal physical wall that ran around the temple of Jerusalem. It kept people like us out, and it was, quote, a one and a half meter high stone barricade on which were displayed at intervals warning notices in Greek and in Latin. And fascinatingly, archaeologists have uh, dug up and unearthed some of those placards. And here is one of the translations from Greek into English. No foreigner may enter within the barrier and enclosure around the temple. Anyone who is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his ensuing death. But Jesus Christ smashed that wall down. How? The question is, how? How did Jesus succeed where Karl Marx failed? How did Jesus succeed where Black Lives Matter are failing and will fail? And how did Jesus succeed succeed where every communist government has failed and will fail? Answer, through the cross. Because the cross tells all races across the entire planet, this is how God should punish you. But God has punished Jesus instead. So since God can now freely accept you, you can now freely accept one another. The cross tells us you are all equally guilty and you are all equally accepted by the blood that poured out from the nails at Calvary. So that now every hand is emptied of boasting and every hand is filled with grace. The fist becomes the handshake and the left hook becomes the right arm of fellowship. Unity has been achieved because boasting is excluded. So listen, friend, if today racism is in your heart, you are spitting at the cross of Jesus, and your Christianity is a sham. Because the one who has looked up to the cross can no longer look down on others. A few years ago, I heard a a story about a a pastor of a church who used to minister back when the, the Ku Klux Klan had a, like an iron grip on many of the churches in the southern states in, in the U.S. And by God's grace, as this uh, pastor was preaching the gospel, uh, African-American people were hearing and they were believing on the Lord, Lord Jesus Christ. And so this pastor baptized them and he was run out of his church for baptizing black new believers. And so he got a job as a cleaner. And he spent the rest of his life cleaning a hospital during the night shift. And back when all of that hostility and everything like that was, was kicking off in his church, one of his sons was, was going through uh, a teenage rebellion. And this is what he said. He said, back then, I watched my dad to see whether his Christianity was the real deal or a job? Because if it was a job, he would have caved in to the pressure to keep his job. But if the gospel was real to him, 
then he would have been willing to lose his job and his ministry and whatever else as well. Well, fast forward a number of years, and this once pastor was on his deathbed. And he looked at this son, and he said to his son, Son, I am so sorry for all of the upheaval that I caused you and the family when we had to move away from the town in which you were born and raised. I know how hard it was for you and for your mother and for your siblings. And his son said to him, Dad, you lost your church, but you gained your son. You see, one of the clearest proof, one of the clearest proofs that sinners have been reconciled to God is that sinners are reconciled to sinners. And so how can we live in the good of the unity that Jesus has brought for us at the cross? Well, I want to share with us three ways. By making Sunday worship our top priority. See, when 80 or when 90 or so individuals assemble to form one congregation and raise one voice to one Savior and sit under one word, we proclaim to the earth and we proclaim to heaven and we proclaim to hell that Jesus Christ was successful in his mission. That Jesus accomplished everything that he went to the cross to accomplish. Reconciliation. Yes, the reconciliation of sinners to God, but also the reconciliation of sinners to sinners. But on the flip side, when we treat the corporate gathering of God's people as no big deal, then we say to the earth and we say to heaven and we say to hell that the victory of the cross is no big deal. It's something that you can take or leave. It's something that you can enjoy when it's convenient for you. But make Sunday worship your top priority. Show up early, leave late, and make a beeline for those whom you would never have anything to do with if it weren't for Jesus and his death, burial, and, resur and resurrection. And connected to that, regularly fill your dining room or kitchen with guests from church. Again, not people who are just like you, but with the people who are not like you at all. And love them. Friends, don't be too offended when I say we could do much better than we're doing at this as a church. I really believe that it is very easy for newcomers, newcomers to come to church on a Sunday morning, have a few handshakes, walk out the door until next week. And that's their church life. But friends, we could do so much better than that. In fact, we must do much better than that. And thirdly as well, invite non-Christians to see our unity in Jesus. That is invite them to that same table. Because again, our world is, is obsessed 
with diversity and equality and inclusion. The problem is the diversity and the inequality and the inclusion that our world celebrates is founded on a foundation of marshmallows. It's why it has to be continually propped up all of the time. But the foundation of our unity and our equality and our inclusion is nothing less than Jesus Christ and him crucified. And therefore, it's compelling because it's real. It's eternal. It's it's profound. And when unbelievers see a collection of individuals praying around one table and sharing in one meal and sharing in one hope, they witness a laying down of arms. And it is powerful. And so make our unity in Christ visible to the world. Lastly, Paul tells them, remember, third, your identity in Christ. First, your history before Christ. Second, your unity in Christ. And lastly, your identity in Christ. Look at verse 19 to 22. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Friend, if you want to be amazed that you are included in God's new creation, then you need to know what that means for you personally. And what it means for you personally is a radical new identity, a radical new identity altogether. And to illustrate that for us, Paul alludes to three pictures, that of a kingdom that of a household, and that of a temple. That of a, a, of a nation. You see, back then, if you were a stranger in a foreign land, you had no rights or privileges. If you were an alien, you had uh, some rights and some privileges. It was only citizens who had all of the rights and all of the privileges of the state. And Paul says here, for us Gentiles who, who used to be separated from Christ, who used to be far off, he says, you are no longer strangers, All of the rights and the privileges of the kingdom of God are now yours. All of God's promises are now yes and amen for you. And all of God's spiritual blessings in the heavenly places like election and redemption and and inheritance and the seal of the Holy Spirit, they're now all for you. Because you're no longer strangers or aliens, but you are fully-fledged citizens with a passport. And we're members of the household of God. God is our father. Jesus is our elder brother. The Holy Spirit is our comforter. And our brothers and sisters are those across every nation, in all races, in all peoples of the world. Citizens of the members uh, are members of God's household. And Paul also said, God's new temple. Just try and think about that in its historical setting. The city of Ephesus 
They have the great, great temple to Diana, Diana or to Artemis. And the Jews, they had their great temple in Jerusalem. But Paul now says God dwells in a new temple. God now dwells in us, made of living stones. And the prophets and the apostles are the foundation. Jesus is the cornerstone. And we are the living stones. Friends, that is who you are if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so let me challenge us with this as we close. We will not fulfill our destiny as believers without unity with believers. Where am I getting that from? Well, look at the end of verse 22. Paul says, in him, in Christ, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Think about that for a moment. If we are scattered, if we are isolated stones strewn across a field, then there will be no temple for God to fill. How much water can a broken glass fill? But if we're cemented together as living stones, then there will be a structure for God himself to inhabit. Spurgeon once likened a a believer with no time or with no uh, commitment to a local church as a, a brick in an open field. In other words, useless. But if you were to take that same brick and insert it into a wall, then it would help to uphold an entire structure. And in just the same way, a believer who is cemented into the life of a church will help to uphold the church in order that God may fill the church with his spirit. The more cemented we are, the more of God we will know. And the less cemented we are, the less unified we are, the less of God we'll know. We need each other. I need you and you need me as well. And so if you're here today and you would say, HEC is my church as imperfect as it is, then become a member and live like a member. Don't, don't say to yourself, oh, I, I don't want to become a member at HEC because it isn't very good at doing that. That's like a brick saying, I don't want to be in that wall because there's a hole in it. Maybe the answer is for you to fill the hole. And maybe the answer is for you to meet the need that you see. And to meet that area of church life in which we're really struggling with at the moment as a church. The goal isn't size for the sake of size. The goal is spirituality in order for the whole world to see that the Redeemer has come for he dwells in the presence of his people. Amen. Amen. Well, let's pray. Pray together and then we're going to respond to God in praise and in worship.
Father, there is so much more of you for this church to know. There's so much more of your Holy Spirit, so much more of your life and indwelling. And so, Lord, we pray that you would convict us of those parts in our minds and in our hearts and even in the church as a whole where we are isolated from one another and not unified to one another. And we pray, Lord, that we would strive for unity in order for us to know more of your presence and more of your blessing and more of your life and more of your Holy Spirit and that, Lord, you would have your way with us. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, let's stand to sing and then we'll close together.